What's up, everyone? And welcome to another episode of the Renewable Energy Smart Pod. I'm your host, Sean McMahon. And today, as the title of this episode indicates, we're going to shine a spotlight on sustainable finance. In a minute, I'm going to be joined by Larry Lawrence. Larry is the head of sustainable finance in the U.S. for Intercontinental Exchange. Intercontinental Exchange, or ICE as it's commonly referred to, plays a crucial role in the ecosystem of sustainable finance. Not only is ICE's history steeped in energy markets and data services, but ICE also happens to own one of the world's foremost stock exchanges, the New York Stock Exchange. Perhaps you've heard of it? Public companies like the ones listed on the New York Stock Exchange have ginormous reporting obligations. So Larry and the team at ICE help those companies sort through the seemingly endless reams of data and mountains of regulatory initiatives to satisfy the information demands and expectations associated with ESG investing. So when you hear a company announce a bold net zero commitment, chances are that company is relying on someone like Larry to help navigate the maze of data needed to report progress on those goals. But ICE doesn't just serve the needs of big companies with household names. When a small company, or maybe even one of those oh-so-hot climate tech startups, is considering going public, Larry helps guide those businesses through the complexity of that process. Larry has worked in the world of sustainable investing for more than two decades, so he has seen some trends come and go. The passion he displays for this topic shines through when you talk to him, so I think you're going to appreciate hearing all the insights he has to share. But before I kick off my conversation with Larry, here's a quick word from the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, EDF Renewables. EDF Renewables is a market-leading independent power producer and service provider with over 35 years of expertise in developing onshore and offshore wind, solar, storage, and electric vehicle charging systems. EDF Renewables, energy your way. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for today's episode. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Larry Lawrence from Intercontinental Exchange. Larry, how are you doing today? I am doing well. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. Now, before we get into a deep discussion about ESG, tell me more about what you and your team at ICE do. Yeah, so at ICE, I belong to what we call the ICE Sustainable Finance Data Team. We're a group of a number of people spread across the world globally across research, data scientists, analysts, and product experts that deliver data and tools across different assets with a focus on fixed income to help our clients meet their sustainability goals. Whether it's just, I need ESG data on the companies I invest in, I need climate risk analytical tools for reporting and regulatory compliance. I need to dig into the physical climate risk dynamics of, of a your municipal portfolio or MBS portfolio, or I need to look at transition risk and think about what targets companies have set and measure those targets in aggregate and think about reporting and how to avoid emissions play a role into that. Like if, if I've avoided in projects or companies that are, you know, working to mitigate the risk of climate change, um, how do I account for that in, in, in my reporting? So, I would say we have a global growing portfolio of sustainable finance data sets and tools um, across climate risk analytics, emissions data. Um, we also have holistic ESG data and you know, with a focus on delivering some pretty innovative and differentiated solutions for the municipal and MBS market as, as well. That's a wonderful background. Your position at Intercontinental Exchange or ICE as everyone knows it, 
puts you at a pretty good perspective to see what's going on in, in the realm of sustainable finance. So tell us, what are the biggest trends and challenges you see right now when it comes to sustainable finance? Yeah, good question. And I've been in the ESG or sustainable finance space for 22 plus years now. So I've been in the front row seat to seeing lots of changes, lots of things develop over the last 10 plus years, especially when things have really accelerated quite a bit. There are certainly some major, major trends we see as of late. I mean, I think the biggest is the entrance of regulators into really looking more closely at you know how information is reported, what information is reported, and some of the confusion around the inconsistencies and definitions and what it means to be in state ESG. So, you know, everything from the regulations coming out of the EU with the SFDR and then, you know, regulations around climate with uh, the task force for climate related disclosure with the TCFD. And we see this around the globe, I would say the regulatory element of it is a huge driver of focus and interest of a lot of people. Obviously, our clients are, are very focused on it. And, and that's where we spend a lot of time to help them navigate some of the trends on the regulatory side, but also when it comes to helping them understand, you know, what data sets they need and, and reporting mechanisms they need to adhere to certain regulations. We certainly do a lot of work to help our clients there. The other thing I'd say on, on the regulation topic is 48 of the world's 50 largest economies have some form of sustainability policy for investors. So it certainly isn't, you know, a non-issue. It's a pretty significant topic around the world. And you're starting to see things pick up in the US with the SEC and some of the climate related disclosures as well. The other big trend that we've seen is obviously it's the elephant in the room, right? The, the A lot of the pushback you've seen on, on ESG investing. But what, what I've seen as a positive outcome of that really is that investors, you know, the asset managers of the world and other investors are becoming much more clear about what they mean by ESG and drawing some clear distinction between you know, what they mean by impact or intentionality and ESG integration as in, I use ESG as an input to help me manage uh, risk from different potential events down the road. The other trend that we see is ESG certainly, you know, demand is still there. We recently conducted a survey with a third party where we, we talked to 111 traders and uh, asset managers around, around the world and 60 plus percent of them said ESG was a still a pretty important priority for their organization. And then as you looked at in the same survey, we asked the question about where do they expect to focus a lot of their attention or their top priorities going into the next three years as it relates to ESG. And, and still it was, how do we embed ESG across the investment life cycle, across different asset classes, as well as how do we improve our reporting capabilities so that our stakeholders, our clients have a better sense of what we're doing with ESG as a firm, but also the performance from an ESG perspective of some of the products and uh, investment opportunities we give them. You know, what are some of the examples of how companies are using data to navigate that intersection? You talked about, you know, stakeholders and investors have these priorities and obviously there's a pretty strong regulatory focus. Yeah. So what role does data play in that? And if you can, can you share some examples of how companies are leveraging data to navigate that? Yeah. I mean, data plays a very important role into that. We can dig into that a little bit as well. And I can, give you a good sense of how I've seen things change from my perspective over the years. But in terms of helping navigate, you know, obviously we we, we listen and engage with a number of companies. In my role, I, I spend the majority of my time interfacing with institutional as well as wealth investors, asset owners as, as, as well, um, and helping them think about how our data set can help them accomplish exactly what you've described. And it comes from a different angles, from 
like I say, a specific company perspective, I recently engaged with a number of smaller, mid-sized private companies who are potentially thinking about what some of the reporting requirements might be if they were to go public or something like that. And, and, and I think what it comes back to in terms of different ways to approach this to make it make sense for you is, you know, a, a couple of things I can point to. One, the stakes are certainly higher when it comes to ESG for a company, um, and especially with reporting. But at the same time, the cost of disclosure is also increasing quite a bit. You have an onslaught of surveys from, you know, over 20 different ESG providers out there now that are finding its way into your inbox. How do you sort of manage, you know, responding to all of them? How do you prioritize? And the advice we we typically give and what we recommend sometimes is, listen, there are frameworks and standards out there, like organizations like, you know, SASB um, that have developed a framework for you know, understanding which issues are material to you as an organization based on what industry you you fall into. So that's typically a great place to start from a corporate perspective. Focus on what's material to your organization because you can't possibly respond to every single survey, to every single request for um, reporting on different metrics. Uh, so so focus on what's material, what's important to your uh, organization based on the sector that you that you fall into. So so that's that's one area where I would suggest. And, and where we spend a lot of time in helping people navigate and helping them understand which issues are material, but also giving them the information and data to illustrate, hey, here's how companies in a given sector uh, are reporting. Here are the metrics that most companies are reporting. Here are the metrics that only some companies are reporting. And, and we can provide the nuance around you know, those types of metrics to help them gauge and prioritize where they potentially spend their time. Now, data is obviously kind of part of the DNA uh, yeah. of the team at ICE. You know, you guys, I mean, I've heard right on up to Jeff Sprecher, you know, data, data, data for years now. But when it comes to ESG, I mean, you mentioned how companies get their inbox gets flooded with surveys yeah. and metrics and data, data. So for this topic, ESG, do we live in a world where there's too much ESG data or not enough? That's a great question. And the unfortunate answer is it depends. <laughs> um, you know, because... It all depends on who you are. If you're an institutional investor, so you're more on the, you know, the sophisticated side of things, sometimes you want as much information and data as you can get your hands on because you, using your expertise and your resource internally, can make a decision on what's most relevant for you to integrate. And, and you can sort of reconcile between these data sets and make, make a call on what's relevant, right? So the, on the institutional side, you know, they have the resources sometimes or most times they have internal teams that help them navigate just ESG. So you will see in lots of these organizations, there is a head of ESG on the research side just to help them navigate the content that they bring into the organization. And then at the same time, at these institutional firms, you have teams that are building out data lakes and with the explicit intention of taking in as many data points as they can and then build in new algorithms and, and technology to help them derive insights across all of these different data sets. So on one end of the spectrum, more data is great. The institutional investors love it. Um, they obviously have lots of questions. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the wealth audience and even retail investors who are beginning to express more and more interest in ESG there. Less is more, absolutely. Because, you know, as an essentially as a financial advisor or an individual, you don't want to sift through a 40-page report on a given company. You don't want to sift through 600 data points on a given company. You want that distilled to a few themes, and you, you want an organization like us to help you reconcile. What does this mean for this company? For example, if you look at carbon emissions, 
um, you know, a sophisticated investor will dig into every element of this. What's your scope one, scope two, scope three? Do you have any carbon reduction targets? You know, have you signed up for the, uh, the SBTI? Um, you know, is, is, are your targets, you know, supported by the science-based targets initiative? You know, do you purchase any renewable energy? So really digging into all of the different performance metrics, initiatives, policies, and things like that. As an advisor on the retail side, all you might want to know is, okay, is the company doing well when it comes to emissions? Are they doing better relative to their peers? Are they doing better relative to the last three years in terms of their trend and trajectory? And that, that might be all you need. And, and then overlaying all of that is, this is so new and so fluid. Things are changing. New things are bubbling up to the surface is important. Regulators across the world don't necessarily agree. You know, the, the, the definitions can vary depending on who you talk to. So all of that begs for the need for more education, the simplification of like what people are trying to do and what these data sets mean. But yeah, that's the, you know, that's, you know, a very long winded way of answering your question, but it's a, it's a multifaceted answer and, and it's not easy, but it really depends on who you are, how sophisticated you want to be um, and how quickly and how much time you have to dig through the content. Right now you mentioned how much companies got to need to know their data, you know, kind of be familiar with what they, or maybe what they know, what they don't know. But what are some of the essentials companies should prioritize when they're trying to establish know your data systems and protocols? Yeah, yeah, I think um, that's a great question. So there, there are a couple of things that I'll throw out there. First, you know, you need to decide both what to collect and what to not collect up front, and then review that based on stakeholder feedback. I mentioned earlier a good uh, framework and potential policy for that is looking to see what some of the frameworks can indicate as what's material for your industry so that you're not sort of all over the place. Um, it gives you sort of a good place to start, you know, and then you want to certainly evaluate automation capabilities, time and cost to automate a data point, you know, has to be weighed against the risk of that data being collected manually because it get, can get out of hand. So you need to think about, you know, ways to build some efficiencies in, in the process. And then the other thing is sort of review existing models in, in, in use in your industry. Um, you know, climate data, you know, for example, there are standards that are agreed on by the industry or by regulators may save a lot of time and effort um, and setting up a, a whole granular and different process. So leverage what's out there. And then maybe the third thing, and I think this is going to become important over the next five years, thinking about the future a little bit. I mean, that is make sure the language in your agreements with suppliers is set up to cover additional data that you may need to ingest from them over time and how it will be managed. So, you know, those are some things that I'd point to is, is sort of what we talk about most when it comes to this type of thing. Okay, well, that makes sense. We'll be right back. EDF Renewables' purpose is to build a net-zero energy future with electricity and innovative solutions and services to help save the planet and drive well-being and economic development. We're committed to providing future generations with the means to power their lives in the most economic, environmental, and socially responsible ways possible. We understand the importance of managing energy integration in a way that also enables clean energy projects to improve the electric grid. Our tailor-made solutions can solve energy challenges facing our customers, no matter the size or complexity. EDF Renewables. Energy your way. And now back to my conversation with Larry Lawrence from Intercontinental Exchange. 
you, know, you mentioned you know, regulatory and the landscape both here in the U.S. and globally. Mm-hmm. Now, are there any specific aspects of the SEC's proposed climate disclosure rules or other regulatory initiatives around the world that really stand out to you as causing the most concern for companies? I think, you know, well, companies in general, from my perspective and our perspective, we don't want to make it any more difficult to be a, to be a company or public company. So, so that, you know, that cost of disclosure is obviously an important thing to consider. But at the same time, on the other end, when we work with investors, you know, they want more disclosure, they want more transparency. So it's certainly a balance. And as you said, I think you, you asked it, you, you, you nailed the question. It's like, how do you reconcile the need for more information and, you know, your ability to support and respond to all of these surveys and different things that are, that are coming out there? I think, you know, related to the SEC proposed climate disclosure rules, there are a couple of common issues that we've seen raised by people. Like, for example, the scope three definitions are not solidified. You know, inability to sort of compel disclosure in the value chain is very difficult uh, to do. So that's probably one of the issues that bubbling up to the surface. You know, there are disincentives around reporting targets and goals. Um, so there, there are a number of things there where there are some issues um, that that I think we need to need to reconcile. But what, but there is support, general support for the proposal movement in a, in a direction where we start to harmonize and align global policy around climate disclosure and expectation. So so certainly improving the function of voluntary carbon markets, for example, not an area where I spend a lot of time, but as more information becomes available and people start sharing more, I think all of those systems, you know, will improve with more accurate information. So you see, you see a lot of support for that. And now when it comes to the blowback that's starting to kind of surface, you know, against yeah. ESG, how do you explain that? Or what's, what's your take on that? So my basic take on that, I think is ESG will manifest itself differently in, in, in different ways, depending on, on factors such as geography, asset class, how mature different capabilities are. It's certainly been a dominant theme in the financial industry over the last few years, especially. While the term is prominent, where you see a lot of sort of confusion is that the term, you know, it's it's prominent, but it's not precise. You know, some view ESG as a risk management technique. Right. There are externalities out there, events that could occur, like take climate change and, you know, the physical exposure that companies have to where their operations are located, especially if you're a manufacturer and physical locations are important to what you do. That's a pretty important theme and a pretty important consideration um, when it comes to, you know, just basic risk management. You need to be aware of that. So ESG plays a role there. Others view it as a, an opportunity to generate impact. And I think that's where some of that confusion potentially lies and you know the the intentionality is there but but the results may not necessarily be there um so i think you're you're you know despite the lack of consensus though you know you still there's still a lot of movement in in the direction of people wanting to find a solution adoption still growing but i i think it's you know to be honest it's the, the reason for the blowback and i think it's related to the greenwashing debate. A lot of people have made lots of lofty promises that they've not been able to provide evidence of achieving. And I think as a result, you're going to get a lot of people asking questions, um, which is which is critically important that, you know, the inputs of data to help provide evidence to support what you're doing is a pretty critical part of a lot of this discussion. 
that segues perfectly to my next question here. So, you know, <laughs> how are firms using data to address concerns or accusations yeah. of greenwashing? I mean, uh, have you worked with anyone who's been like, okay, hey, we've been accused of this, but look, here's our data set that proves that, you know, we're sticking to our word or at least working towards our goal in an effective way? I mean, no one's come to us and said, hey, we've been accused of greenwashing. Help us. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no one's, no one's, no one's come to us saying that explicitly, but you know, it's like I can tell you based on discussions I've had with people in the industry, it's a very topical subject at almost every asset manager, right? Like we need to be careful about what we say. We need to double and triple check everything we put out there in the public sphere. And we need to support things with, you know, as much evidence as possible. And that comes right back to the same discussion, data, 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 brings it back to knowing your data is absolutely a critical part of helping avoid this whole greenwashing topic for, you know, for asset managers, I think obtaining and applying what I call raw and granular data is the first step towards making sure you don't sort of get into this greenwashing trap. Um, you know, you can sometimes, you know, firms get too reliant on some of these ratings that you see out there. And, you know, a rating is obviously a firm's, especially if it's a ratings provider, a firm's opinion, because they have a methodology that goes into that, but it's derived from a lot of different things. And, you know, it can't solve for every single use case. So what you need to do is address specifically what you're trying to accomplish and then use actual raw data that comes back as close to the source as possible. For example, not just the score on the environmental record of a company, but the actual emissions and the performance of those emissions over time. And then reporting that and showing um, and using that to illustrate your story and defend you know, what you've articulated as goals, um, what you're trying to accomplish. The other thing is, you know, just, you know, and I think we wrote, a, we wrote an article about this earlier in the year. The other thing I think it's important in the greenwashing debate is just, you know, this goes back to what I mentioned about the, the granularity or the volume of data. It could be a good thing depending on who you are and the most sophisticated investors like more data. But, you know, one of the things you need to be very careful of is you need to be aware of the potential biases that are in uh, and the limitations of, of the data that you use from depending on who you get it from, from different data vendors. Some data vendors can introduce bias in the way they collect information. They can introduce bias in the way, because a big part, even though we've come a long way in terms of improving the number of companies that we collect information for as an industry, the number of companies that we sort of report and, and publish ESG data for, there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done. Um, and obviously the, the disclosure regulations and regimes around the world will help, but a lot of people rely on estimation or inference models to fill in those gaps. So understanding how those work is a pretty important part of making sure you know your data um, because you know if, if they're wildly inaccurate, you know that can put you in a position to defend something that you're not entirely comfortable with or you potentially can't defend. So the idea is to try to refer to the facts as much as possible, like raw data. That's what I mean by raw data. Um, rely less on scores, and that'll put you in a pretty, pretty decent position, I would think. And now since so much of this is, like you said, imprecise, you know, a lot of yeah. estimates, inferences, and things like that, what's your take on the notion that perhaps E and S and G should be pulled apart? And so that an individual company, you know, might be yeah. great at, you know, they're buying a bunch of renewable energy and they're great on yeah. their emissions, but their governance is awful, you know? And so yeah. how does that all factor? Should those remain together or perhaps be siloed? 
the, the way I'd answer that, I'd answer it in a couple of ways, and I'll start by answering it this way. People use it that way already, right? So like you may see in a composite rating that is an aggregation of all, all three things. So that is one way of looking at the information. And some people value that because it's, you know, simple metric you can sort of optimize and use as a lever one way or the other. But we've, over the years, we've had a lot of people, a lot of clients, a lot of investors who already disaggregate and use these individual components the way they want. So I think there's a lot of power in doing it that way. I think, you you know, we're not here to tell investors how to build and manage portfolios. Our goal is to give them the data, listen to them um, in terms of how they'd like to use the data. So we enhance our capabilities and data sets and deliver that to them and enable them to make the decision. Like, you know, we're not, we're not making the decisions for them, right? We were an enabler and we, we support them with what they need to enable them to make the decision. So I do agree that looking at these, you know, pillars distinctly and delivering them distinctly, which I know many firms do, is, is probably the best approach and leaving it up to the investor to then pull the levers to then assign the weight, tilt anything in a particular direction based on what they're trying to accomplish. Like one example I'll give you is in, in like wealth, for example. Wealth is an area that I covered for years where you have lots of high net worth investors who work with advisors and these high net worth investors are tend to be very ESG focused and oriented. They want to understand what they own. They want to know what they own. They want their capital working to have a net positive in the world and they want to avoid exposure to certain types of investments and companies. And you know, in wealth, you may have a single advisor who works with 10 or 15 different high net worth clients. As, as an example, um, one client will come to you and say, I'm very concerned about the environment, climate change, and, you know, avoiding, you know, the catastrophes that have been <laughs> estimated and, you know, you know, in, in the next decades to come is near and dear to my heart. You can't do that with a composite signal, right? You need to dig into the data set. You need to focus on the environmental issue to solve for what that client cares about, because at the end of the day, you're trying to build a goals-based approach to helping them achieve what they want. And you're trying to reflect their values with their investment portfolio to some degree. So you can't anyway do that with a single signal. You need to dig a little deeper into the data set. And you may have another client that comes to you and says, the social issues are near and dear to my heart. I care about how companies treat employees. I care about how they treat employees in, in global communities and in, in the locales where they source materials from and where they operate. Um, and I care about how they treat, you know, whether or not they have collective bargaining agreements for all of their suppliers. There are people who are very focused on these types of issues. So, again, you can't solve for this with a composite rating. You need to dig into the data, go a few levels deeper to really tilt and, and adjust the portfolio to reflect, what we say, customize a portfolio to reflect what the client wants. And the last example on the G side, someone may come to you and say, I care deeply about diversity on boards specifically with women on boards, which is a theme we've seen a tremendous amount of momentum around over the last few years. You've seen a number of studies and papers published illustrating that, you know, once you see a 30% more um, threshold in terms of women on boards, you tend to see outperformance of companies relative to their peer groups. Like there are lots of people with that mandate um, who say, hey, I'd love to, I want to focus in on this as a topic area. Again, you need to dig into the data. You need to look at some of these thematic categories. And, but that's the best example I can give you. Those thematic categories provide the best optionality because it certainly it means different things to different people. One size absolutely does not mean, does not fit all because it's at the end of the day, it's just data. It's really how you apply it that, that matters.
I got to tell you, Larry, I'm loving this. I mean, you have your <laughs> you have your eyes on so many different areas of the ESG, you know, realm. That yeah, yeah, it's just wonderful. So, leveraging that, you know, you've obviously been working in sustainable finance for a really long time, and so you've seen some of the things come and go. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen during your career? That's a good question. I would say some of the biggest changes I've seen is that I like to characterize it in a couple of ways, you know. From my personal view, what I've seen over the last, let's just say, five, 10 years is that I take it from a data provider's view. That's where I sit, right? The different data providers have been in a race to not to not a race to the bottom, as people would typically say, right? It's not a race <laughs> to the bottom in terms of fees or anything like that, but it's in a race to cover more and more companies. You know, years when we started, we started with large caps in the US, then we start, you know, expanded to large caps in like Europe. Now it's large cap emerging markets, mid cap now small cap. So you're going down and down market. You want to cover China, APAC, more coverage. You want to cover Canada and all companies in Canada. So what you've seen is a race for more coverage. And a lot of that is driven by investors wanting to cover what I call the total portfolio. Imagine as an asset owner, for example, and this is probably one of the biggest trends we've seen, you've made a commitment to decarbonize your portfolio by 2030. Like just an asset owner who's got exposure to the four main asset classes, corporates, you know, sovereigns, you know, munis, MBS, potentially real estate, private assets, different alternative assets. That, those are, that's a lot of different assets out there that you would need to have some view about the carbon footprint as it is today in order for you to actually achieve that goal, which is to decarbonize our operation by how many X percent by 2030. So I think that's been the biggest, one of the biggest changes I've seen is this drive and race to cover more and more assets over the last you know, decade or so. And, and we've made a lots of strides and, and we've moved beyond, and I, I shouldn't say this, but we moved beyond the dark ages of underground manual research where literally I used to, you know, I, I never sort of sat down and did the analyst work, but I worked closely with all the analysts who were literally either looking at physical CSR reports, physical 10Ks, or downloading them from websites, scheming through them, copying and pasting different data points to where now we've applied sort of different machine learning and natural language processing mechanisms where you can take unstructured data from a file, right? Place it into a database, eliminating the need for that individual to do that manual data collection. And now you've got alternative data that's being used. It's not just about what the company says, it's about all the things that are adjacent to that company will give you a better picture of about what that company is doing. So taking information from different regulatory bodies, government agencies, whether it be OSHA and others like that, all of these data sets, the alternative data sets are playing more and more of a role into painting a better picture and sometimes a more accurate picture. One of the criticisms you've seen, we've seen about ESG over the years is that, listen, a lot of these companies that perform well or have these high ratings are the ones who can actually afford to put out these glossy reports and, and push this information out. Now, in the early years, that may have been the case. We've certainly seen that's not necessarily the case, but that struggle is still there where the, the people who can afford it do the extra work to put the information out there. And as a result, depending on who you are as a provider, and again, this is why it's important to know your data, that may weigh more into a particular model or not. But, but we've seen lots of strides in the way information is collected and these technologies that have been put into practice you know, one of the biggest trends we've seen, especially in the last three years, like every school has a climate center, or well, maybe not every school, but lots of school has climate centers now. 
they're incubating new ideas, new companies, new models and things. So it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable time to be in the ESG industry because things are changing so fast. There's so much innovation. You're seeing lots of companies pop up that address the disclosure issues. You know, how do I capture all of this data to just report my emissions? There are companies out there that, that are focused just on helping different organizations do that. And then you have companies out there that are taking advantage of the circular economy that are building ecosystems to help you um, make use of products, reuse products to, you know, at, at the end of the life so that they're not just found in, in a landfill somewhere. So all of these different innovations are happening. And then from the investors, I can keep going, obviously, but t- tell me to shut up when, when you want me to stop. <laughs> I keep going. Then, it's fantastic. And then on, on the investor side, like some of the things you're seeing out there, like sophisticated investors, you know, typically when I say sophisticated, it's not to say, you know, they're, they're better than anyone else's. These are the people who are at the forefront, who have the resources and are really doing a lot in the space. They're looking at rolling this out across all of the different asset classes they have exposure to. So not just, you know, equities and fixed income, um, but within fixed income, like municipals. Um, and mortgage-backed securities, like that's that's where we do a lot of work. We've rolled out some of the first solutions to help you measure what your physical climate risk is um, in the muni and MBS market, right? Um, um, it can help you project over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, what, how, how those risk parameters change. Um, and then if you're look, invested in the hospital system, you know, looking at how the risk changes depending on the, on the drive time from that hospital or from the school system, so we've done some pretty remarkable things with, we built like this geospatial and machine learning platform that sort of harbors all of this imar- remarkable technology that enables us to sort of take any patch of dirt um, and be able to tell you what the climate risk uh, analytics are. Is it susceptible to wildfire? How that changes over the decades? Is it susceptible to hurricane? And how that changes over the decade? But beyond that, for an investor, how that is applicable to your portfolio. So these are remarkable things um, that we've seen. And then lastly, and I'll shut up, I promise, you know, we've seen, you know, the climate discussion is real, right? And there have been lots of questions asked about, are some of these companies decarbonizing their operations by just selling off the units that are highly intensive to the private sector, you know, to private companies and taking them off, essentially off their books. And, and so then now you're seeing a big push to get more transparency into private companies and private assets. And, and then obviously measuring scope three, a huge piece of that is understanding, you know, your supply chain and the carbon footprint of different suppliers in your supply chain and encouraging them to either change or, or report more effectively. So you're seeing all of this. Uh, and, and I think it will only increase. We haven't even talked about real estate and the potential there and then infrastructure and different things like that. But it's some remarkable things that have happened over the years. Lots of new companies, lots of new competitors. <laughs> um, but I think it's an extremely fun time. And if, you know, if, if you're thinking about, if you're listening and thinking about entering an industry, this, this is certainly a pretty exciting one. Now, it's fascinating to hear everything that's changed and you've seen it, the industry evolve over all these years. But as we know, you know, past results are not an indicator of future performance. And so one of the things I like to do in this show is ask guests for their bold predictions. So <laughs> I feel like two or three years ago, if we're talking about ESG, like a not so bold prediction would have been like, oh, it's going to keep growing, you know, but mm-hmm. now some of the winds have not shifted, but they're starting to die down a little bit and maybe even shifted, I guess. Yeah. What kind of bold predictions do you have about where this space goes in the next, say, five years? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. Obviously, some a question we spend some time thinking about as, as we think about the future and 
what we're solving for and what we're building for. You know, I think you'll continue, I, I, as you said, right? There's there's going to be some ebb and flow with with the the level of acceleration given some of the some of the pushback. You know, we're starting to see people a little bit careful about the products they put out there. They're taking a little bit more time doing due diligence and making sure all the I's are dots, all the T's across before a product goes. So you may see a little bit of a slowdown in some of that, but the investor appetite is not disappeared. I think they, I think you're just going to see a lot more, you know, methodical um, steps taken. So things may be a little bit slower, but, but the, the pace and, and or, or at least the, the, the interest and push to, to do more, I, I certainly think is, is there. And then our, our clients have indicated as much and, um, and we expect that to change. I, so I, I would say in terms of bold prediction, I think there's no question that climate's going to be super relevant still because I think it's, you know, there's still a lot to do. Progress towards some of our goals have been a little lackluster. So I think you're going to see increasing focus on what are we doing there. Some of the disclosure regulations, when they finally are um, in play and, and people start to see more and more data, I think they may open some eyes to either increase the focus on what people are doing. I think that's going to be big. The other prediction I have is I think retail and individual investors will start to play a much more important role in the discussion. So, you know, there are some, you know, even some airlines are now giving you the options when you fly to spend five, ten dollars to offset, you know, the emissions from your flight. I think that's going to find its way into different retail and, you know, uh, technology as well as, um, uh, investor shops, you know, I, I don't want to say any names. I'm like so close to saying names, but I want to avoid, <laughs> I want to avoid saying names. But if you, if there's a platform as an individual where you do self-directed investing, I think you're going to see that more and more. And what we've seen is that anyone, if you provide financial services to individuals and you don't have anything to say about ESG or climate, I think you're, you're, you're kind of far off and, and not listening to, to investors. I don't think that's going to change. So I predict that being investors playing a very important role in, in all of that. And, choice in where you buy products and who you buy products from will become more and more commonplace for investors as well. You know, my, my dream of the future is that similar to the nutrition label on the back of every uh, item you see in the grocery store, you'll see something similar for climate and ESG for investment products. And you know, like it's just be everyone will just know what they're buying and what they're getting into. And I, I think over time, more transparency, again, this is just data. We're not He's not asking people to make things up. We're just saying, just give us a little transparency into what's in there so that we can make a decision. And I think if that, if access, and I think over the next five years, access will certainly improve. I think that's going to be a net positive for everyone if, if those are things you're using to make decisions. All right. Well, hey, Larry, I mean, you're an absolute fountain of knowledge on this. <laughs> I can talk I, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hey, I, I definitely appreciate you sharing some of that knowledge with my listeners. So this has been outstanding. Thank you very much. Absolutely happy. And uh, let me know when you want to do this again. Well, that's our show for today. But before we get out of here, I want to say one final thank you to the exclusive sponsor of today's episode, EDF Renewables. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to follow us on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at RenewablesPod. And if you'd like a daily dose of renewable news delivered to your inbox, head to smartbrief.com and sign up for the Renewable Energy Smart Brief. The Renewable Energy Smart Pod is a production of Smart Brief, a future company. Smart Brief.